Yo, yo, yo. What's up? Let's go on a tired, dreary Monday. <laughs> yeah, that's why I picked up the pace on this one today. Get us going a little bit. I'm ready. Long week, boys. L- long last five days. I would say uh, it's been a minute. How you doing? But I know how you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> We're back. Another episode of the Soccer Dad Pod coming at you. And this one's going to be... I'm really, really looking forward to this one because we are literally talking to an individual halfway around the world. Like, shoot a bullet through the earth and it's it won't hit them, but it'd be in maybe the same time zone. It's unbelievable how far he's away. And I think after this show, the proof will be in the pudding is... Why is he not here running shit? <laughs> uh, we definitely are going to get to that. A um, lot, lot of stuff going on, uh, obviously, in our worlds, in our boys' worlds, in the world of uh, soccer, the MLS awards keep rolling out. The final was over the past weekend. We're literally sitting here watching the College Cup final in real time between Notre Dame and Clemson. Uh, the Champions League is knee deep. There's Concacaf. Uh, Cup was that format was all announced. I mean, it's just all things soccer all knee the time. Knee deep, knee deep, neck deep. It's a, it's neck deep this time. And everybody thought oh, it's going to slow down a little bit off season. No, no, no. Plus ambush. And the yeah, I was going to bring that up. That, that was one thing that uh, special little announcement here in a second. Uh, want to go ahead and get some of the th- thanks out the door and get our uh, fun little chatter going here. Uh, new to the show, we are working with our friends down in uh, the city. Explore STL. They're responsible for aggregating all things cool and just kind of telling the story of St. Louis. What you know, what to do, what to eat, where to sleep, all that other stuff. Which brings me to. Our new little feature called the Explore Trifecta. Wah, 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 wah. Big I like, time. I like, I like that. that sound effect. That was good. Thank yeah, you. so just Actually, to recap. I really hate the original soundtrack. <laughs> I like yours better. I like, yeah, it had a little uh, more real gruff to it. Yeah. Made it a little edgier. <laughs> hey, before you do that, clear your throat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, last week we talked about uh, what to do, what to eat, where to stay down in Soulard. Uh, this week, since we are. Uh, kindly being hosted by our friends over at Four Hands at the new location, The Hub, in Chesterfield Valley. Um, I figured we would just talk about Chesterfield. Chesterfield. Makes a whole hell of a lot of sense. Things to do here and eat and stay. So, J-Rod, you're first. I think I'm up to... If, so, uh, if, the, so, if the, somebody's coming out of Chesterfield, what are they doing? The to-do. Um, I'm going to start over in this little corner on the north side of the valley that's getting revitalized as we speak. JB had mentioned four hands. Their 10,000 square foot second location was open. They got everything here from food, whiskey, canned cocktails, and all their delicious beers. And in that same day... Or, or around coming up here in the first of the year, we have at the beautiful factory shows that uh, hit close to our home is, you know, Dropkick Murphys are coming in February, Muscadine Bloodline. Love those guys. Southern, uh, Southern Country Duo. And then um, just, I mean, you can walk to all these places from here. You can park in front of Four Hands and 
you can't go wrong at, at Top Golf. A little, a little competition to take the family. Yeah, um, Top Golf main event. Yeah, I mean the factory what? all in one spot. This north, this north lane over here, yeah. Zach, there is no shortage. Zach, I, I know that you were assigned where to sleep, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of and not not that it's not cool because there are definitely cool rooms around here. Sure, but it's kind of sterile. A little sterile in well, a good way. Yeah, in a I mean, clean, family-friendly way. These are clean, family-friendly so, places for sporting events or for visiting family and not wanting to stay. So let know, me downtown. let me let you off the hook. Uh, you you live close by. You yeah. bring the family. What's the one thing you do out here? So we come here actually to the district and hang out. There's video games here at High Point. And so you give your kids rolls of quarters so yeah. you can drink beer. Yep. Or we go to Got the main it. event. Love it. Hang out. Uh, I'm going to talk about the food out here uh, because. You know, the Valley is one of those places where there's always things happening. We just talked about the location here with High Point, and there's other food options coming. But when you talk about Chesterfield Valley and you talk about food, you would be remiss. You, you would you would miss out on everything if you don't mention Annie Guns. Annie Guns is an institution. Go get the steak, get the red wine, old school. Uh, they just Shrimp do it right. cocktails hit in there, too. Yeah. So uh, that's our Explore Trifecta of the Day. Uh, you're listening to this thing. You need a little getaway. Drop the kids off at Top Golf. Go over to Andy Guns. Get a real steak. Let them eat pretzel bites while they hit a bucket of balls, and then go watch a concert. Yeah, good thing. Uh, it, it, let's get right into it because our friends Chris and Bill they continue to support the show, uh, which brings us to the pinnacle points of the day. Last stuff going on. So I'm really curious. Uh, who wants to go first? I'll go. I mean. On Saturday, we were down in Phoenix at yes. the MLS Next Fest, and one of our teams that we play against quite often, Columbus Crew, was there celebrating the fact that they had just won the MLS Cup over LAFC. <coughs> the goalie for LA or for Columbus Crew is our own Patrick Schulte. The winner. Played, the winner played at Scott Gallagher, played at SLU, and at 22 years old, yeah, the youngest MLS Cup goalie starting goalie ever and i mean the accolades just keep coming for this young oh yeah fine goalkeeper i mean last year mls2 goalie of the year mls2 best 11 now he just caps it off with this stellar year and made pivotal 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 saves in huge in in these conference games leading into the cup he's you know it's funny because it's like you know we've been doing this show for a little over a year and we always joke and take you know little swings at quote peers you know and and i've always said like and i understand kansas's argument i get it they're like well it's a team it's team wins it's what's your record where's your trophy case you know and frankly we're one year into that league right all the other leagues we've been in for a long time but my argument has always been in order to be a soccer community to to claim culture or any form of quote capital is you know capital status it's about your development. It's about your players. It's about the kids that grew up here and learned it. And Schulte's a perfect example. Uh, the club, you know, helped mold him. And, and then TK, we talked about him a couple episodes oh, yeah. back a lot. Has his fingerprints all over this one. It's super cool to see it. So And got some calls out uh, on Twitter or yeah. X yeah. for the his goalkeeper developer yeah. talent as a youth goalie keeper coach do you know that patrick schulte elected tk as one of his events as one of his guests for the final yeah he, i saw, uh, I saw his sense. photos that's pretty awesome <laughs> yeah. uh pinnacle point two 
Yeah, J-Rod, what you got? Um, I'm going to stay in the MLS game. Um, today, Monday, December 11th, I know this, this episode will be released later, the 2023 Mark Abbott MLS Club and Executive Award winners were announced today. And uh, our fine club um, continues the, the storybook first year, and we get the nod for two of them. Um, the first one, I will say, is... Um, it's corporate engagement. Yeah, it was like corporate partnership activation of the year. I mean, I think the name speaks for itself, but I want to touch on the second award because on our well, last... Well, okay. real quick, let me, let's me let talk about the corporate one because it just occurred to me. like, you know, So when you think of corporate engagement, you think of sponsorship. You think about yes. the naming rights. Yes. You think mm-hmm. about all that stuff. What happened with the name of our stadium? About six months prior to kicking off. Bye-bye. <laughs> yep. The corporate sponsorship said, nah. No. Yeah, exactly. It was supposed to be uh, um, Express Scripts. No. Or, uh, no, no. Centene. Sorry, sorry, Centene sorry. Centene Stadium, you're right. Supposed to be Centene. And they decided to, you know, what's that saying? Uh, F around and find out, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, they did, yeah. and they, yeah. they're out. <clears throat> and all of the other partnerships is what resulted in the win. Which just is another indication of how strong this front office group is. Agreed. Because how do you lose a stadium naming, naming right. right and win and, that award and just brush it off as if it's you know a light mist in the morning? Well, I, I, I tell you what, it. that's that, that, that touche. Um, the second award, which is really, really, really cool, because we just had go back one episode, Mr. Lee Broughton on what it what an informative episode. I've listened to it, and that that dude's smart. Yeah, he was and, and engaging so, and fun to listen to. So the second one is the marketing club of the year. So led by Lee and, and filtering and down, C-Back we've had Seaback and, and all these guys. And if you walk into that stadium on the game day experience, you can see real quickly why they won that award. It is first class from everywhere. You well, know what I mean? And, and all the digital, too. You know, when you think of marketing that's outbound, you're advertising what's going on. You know, and they're 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 short videos, they're mid mid length videos. They told a better story because I mean, there's been you know since the since year one, there's been 19 expansion teams. I want to hear Zach's um, opinion on this because he he's close to this part in his corporate world. But do they win the do they win the award just for the redouts? I mean, how many clubs have already copied <laughs> it? Yeah. Well, I think. What Lee said that sticks with me is we wanted to tell a story under a collective narrative. And I think that's what they've done all across the sponsorships, all across the food partners, all across the art districts and the partnerships with so many folks across the city and the area and telling that story of the people of St. Louis and what they've done. That's the marketing. That's what's gotten them where they are. And I think that's what helped them get this award. Well, I think, uh, <clears throat> did we talk about it in the last episode where uh, the, the Casey Current Stadium was bringing in some restaurant that had won or nominated yeah. for three <laughs> yeah. Michelin awards? I award? think we didn't talk about it on mic. But it, did, did we not talk I about it? I think we did. Yeah, we did. We okay, did. so uh, real quick, Casey Current was like, oh, yeah, check it out. You know, who else has Michelin nominated, you know, food options in your stadium? And I did, you know, real quick search Gerard, uh, Gerard Kraft, Kraft uh, and I'm like, well, does eight count and a win? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Mr. Gerard today was like, uh, liking it all, checking it out. Um, but here's where I'm going with this. Every aspect of the experience from digital to walking in 
Um, they just nailed it. So for them to win these awards, I, I, it, I'm, not, I'm not surprised at all. I'll finish up for the pinnacle point two of the day. The accolades keep coming. Well-deserved. Congratulations to the organization. And uh, here's to more successes in the future years. So I'm going to do a 2B because the one that I think we lost that we should have won, we, the collective we, was the Sport Director of the Year Award. Mm. Chris Albright from FC Cincinnati, he gets it. Yeah. Um, and if you guys remember the, the Coach of the Year selection, uh, Noonan, um, Noonan won that one. And everybody locally was like, oh, Carnell, Carnell, Connor. And I was one of the few that was like, no. I, I, I think when you look at the performance, he earned it. But when it comes to the, that director role and sculpting a team, I do think Lutz deserved that one. Well, in year one of City 2, we get to the championship final. Yeah. In year one of first team, we win our conference and get to the playoffs. I think you'd have a good argument. And I bet he was probably top two, maybe three. The other one that floored me, if we're talking about it, and we won't beat this to death, is the other uh, uh, um, uh, category, digital activation of the year. With the app and with just how user-friendly the whole... The whole program is. That's an award we were probably pretty close to as well. And that's one we just don't know too much about because we haven't experienced it as much. We haven't traveled the other MLS environments. Well, Nashville won, and I haven't been to a game there, but we've been to other ones. I did did find it funny. Somewhere in that list, uh, the one award SKC won was like the, the the PR one or press conference or they won best neighboring furniture store of the year <laughs> yeah. oh oh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, wood, wooden outlet malls are us it was bob's discount furniture nice congratulations it's actually nebraska furniture mart oh is it was nebraska? that ripped off of uh ollie's yes uh, okay congratulations kansas yeah <laughs> all right pinnacle point three uh I, i'm gonna i'm gonna talk a little bit about and this is a subject that we've talked about in the past and that is kind of the the next best thing, the the new hot thing um, when it comes to these kids at these MLS Next events and beyond. When you have sites and accounts such as Footy Access on Insta and U.S. Youth National Team uh, uh, prospects, yeah, USMNT prospects, prospects. A, a bunch of these accounts, they all look at these events and then they glamp onto the next best thing you know yeah. and this year the golden child uh uh elect was uh, the kid caden out of philly i believe caven caven c-a-v yeah yeah who's an 09 playing up at u-17 so he's playing two years up um and i watched the highlights and all of them had the same highlights and again it's one of those things the kid is maybe 60% into puberty. Um, low, low guy. Fast, right? He's got skills. Very, very fast on the ball. Um, but he's still playing against other teenagers. And there's a lot of life left. A lot of learning left. And I think that we're not... Th- these kids... And it's not going to change. None of this is going to change. It's going to happen year over year. And there's going to be the next cave-in probably in 
four months time when when they all go to GA Cup, right? Um, it, it just I don't think it's realistic, and I think it's harmful to all of these tens and t- of thousands of kids that follow these accounts because it's just not real. We've heard it from the horse's mouth themselves. P- guys like Pat Noonan and Brad Davis, et cetera, that have been on the show, like, this doesn't mean anything, yet it's all you see right now. So I don't, you know, I don't really have a point other than it kind of gets annoying and I think it's unfair to these kids, especially the kids that are named. I, I don't disagree with that at all. In fact, I'd almost say, even say I agree with you. By the way, I hate that phrase. I don't disagree. And I say it way too often. It drives me nuts. But what it's, it, a, it's a little condescending, but I get it. Yeah, it is. I don't disagree with you. Yeah, I don't really agree with you, but I don't disagree. But your point could be a little bit better. Yeah. So I wanted to say I agree with you <laughs> in that Kaven Sullivan is the prototype social media darling that we've talked about multiple times in the show. Good for him. I mean, he's gotten some looks and some caps with you know the U.S. team, and obviously he's he's good. And Philly Union has a residency program, and they have probably the one of the top academies in the country. So to to play against those kids every day and then still go up two years and produce like he has is impressive. Does it translate to a long term success? No. There's no. There's no. Well, there was, there was a couple of metric there. Trolls on those accounts that were basically saying, oh, he's going to be a great college player. <laughs> you well, know? I, I, here's what I will say on the flip side of it all, because I agree, uh, not to be agreeable, all three of us, but the good problem that we have that we're, that we're gaining momentum in our youth game is there is somebody is covering it, whether it's right or wrong. So we're getting traction from all these sites. That's that's, that's, a, that's, that's a glass that's half a positive, full. Yeah. I like that. that. That's yeah. an only, that's a good thing for for our youth game. No, that, I agree. That and is I, absolutely true. I think I think it's one of those things that for the kids that are knee deep into this thing or neck deep, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> when they watch this stuff, if they're really taking note and they're paying attention, because they know these kids. You know, not only during an event, but they know them three months later, six months, even 12 months later to learn from the process, to learn from the stress, to learn from their own ups and downs. It's a good thing. So, um, yeah, a lot of things going on. We're going to take a break here in a second. We're out here at Four Hands Brewery. What is it? This is called the hub or what is this? I think the hub is this at the district. You shape where they're going to add all these restaurants and little shops and the anchors are four hands on one side and high point on the other but this whole area is called the district with top golf the hotel main event the hub and the factory there's like an event venue here right behind us i believe as well on the same property so yeah okay so what we're gonna do we're gonna take a break in just a second here we're gonna get some refills then we're gonna bring our guest on last thing i want to talk about um Wintertime in St. Louis, when it comes to soccer, you have kids all over the place playing indoor and futsal, but the ticketed event within the marketplace is our St. Louis ambush, the play out at Family Arena. Um, We're working some details out. You're going to hear this. If you hear this before, great. If you hear it after, it doesn't matter. Go get your tickets. But December 17th, Sunday, home game, yours and yours and yours, truly. The three of us are... Uh, going to be out there checking it out. We're going to be chatting it up with uh, s- probably, uh, staff, players. Uh, I, I think it'd be fun. Let's just pull some fans in. 
Let's get some kids on the mic. Yeah. Num- numbers go up when kids are on there. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. But uh, Ambush, they're going to have game four of the season home uh, this Sunday, the 17th. Um, so if you're looking for something to do, go check them out. A lot of fun. Totally affordable. Family entertainment. Family arena. St. Louis Ambush. Uh, that's on you. Um, and we're going to take a break. You guys, uh, you guys got anything else for me? No, that's good. Well, what do you guys think about uh, Buffalo Chip in Cave Creek, Arizona? <laughs> uh, still recovering. So, for those of you that are wondering, <laughs> <laughs> there will be video posted of both of my carpool co-hosts uh, riding a mechanical bull poorly. Yes, yeah, poorly, um, very poorly on my part. <laughs> Zach, a little more poorly, but this place is a country boot scoot and boogie bar and it has a bull riding arena a real bull riding arena on the facility well when we first got there and that party of five that were sitting at the bar and full-on chaps and gear all of a sudden disappeared behind the little shed and next thing you know all five of them are on their horses exiting walking through right the through the beer garden yeah through the beer garden yeah kind of cool uh yep. yeah Buffalo Chip in Care, Carefree. 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 No, no, no. Cave Creek. Cave Creek. It's on Cave Creek Road in Cave Creek, Arizona. Yes, that's that's accurate. Next time you're out in Phoenix, Scottsdale, don't go sit down with the Blue Hairs and golf in Scottsdale <laughs> and go shopping. Don't do that shit. Go up north. Buffalo Chip up in Ca- Cave Ride Creek. Ride your horse to the bar. Yeah. yeah. You'll have a lot of fun. Hey, we're going to be right back. Thank you, uh, Forehands and et al. We'll be right back with our guest of the day. Catch you on the flip side. Hey, everyone. Buying a home, it's kind of a big deal. Never has there been more competition to buy, so few homes to choose from, all made worse by an uncertain interest rate landscape. Now that you're short a bedroom for the third kid, you're in the wrong school district, and a walkable corner pub isn't nearly close enough It's time to reach out to the Pinnacle Loan Team for help. They work with a network of agents that have their feet on the ground across the whole region and have a number of loan products that are cost-effective with a process that is simple. Basically, they've got you covered from start to finish. So when it's time to buy, visit thepinnacleloans.com. That's thepinnacleloans.com, simply the best in home loans. The term staycation was really invented by soccer moms. Located one hour and seven minutes from the arch, the Music Box Chalet at Innsbruck is a hidden gem. Buried in three acres of private woods, the Music Box has a master suite for just you, a loft and second bath for them, and a vinyl collection to meet your every mood. The full-size kitchen will easily accommodate three to 12 bottles of rosé, while the huge fire pit seating area will keep the big kids busy. Golf, fishing, kayaking, pickleball, or simply reading a book with Mother Nature, all at your fingertips. Visit either VRBO or Airbnb to find the Music Box Chalet. And now, back to those guys. (laughs) Turning Japanese, baby. We're back. Playing this in honor of our guest here from far 
far reaches of the world here today. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun because we're going to get hopefully neck deep, knee deep, which is it. Either or. <laughs> Waist deep, neck deep. Waist just really deep into development, coaching, process, culture. Uh, because uh, our guest today is one of the leaders. He's, he's on the forefront of all of those items in helping kind of mold the next wave, next gen of successful young players that turn into more successful middle age players and older players so you guys uh you guys ready to do this that's a main word global yeah totally yeah so joining us from tokyo japan is the tom buyer tom thank you so much for joining us and it's great to see you and uh great to hear you no it's a pleasure being with you guys um i've been looking forward to this I have heard some of your other uh, podcasts in the, in the past, believe it or not, and uh, I really thought it was really cool and, and sounded fun. So here I am. Well, we, we appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, thank you for listening. First off, um, I, you know, there's a million different places that we would, you know, we, we talked about this before in our little pre-production, a.k.a. our first beer of the evening uh, <laughs> meeting. Um, <laughs> As to what direction to go here, and I think it would make the most sense if you could kind of give our listeners, and really us, a, a current snapshot, kind of a, uh, a picture of, give us an idea of, you know, where you're at, kind of what the title is, what your day in, day out uh, with the current position, what are you doing and what's the goal so our listeners can kind of understand the today, and then we'll, we'll go back in time a little bit and connect some dots. Sure, I'll try to give you the short version, but I'm originally from the States, from New York. I wound up in Japan in the mid-1980s as a player, and after I hung up the boots of playing, I got uh, quickly into development um, and built a very successful uh, commercial business around grassroots football development or soccer development here in Japan. Um, and really, I, I focus and I've carved out a niche as a, I'm a technical coach. So, and what does that mean is, is that basically I focus on improving individual technical skills. That's really what my whole career has been. And we do that by delivering and creating a message here in Japan. And that message was very simple. Um, it was if you want to be a good soccer player, it all starts with the technical component. So we built a whole ecosystem around that. Um, there's always a lot of luck involved in business as well. I, I, I was here at the right time and uh, in the early 1990s, Japan established their their professional league called the J-League, which is, is, is exactly 30 years. We just finished the, the final of the, the league, just finished uh, literally just a couple days ago. Um, and so we've been doing this for 30 years. Now there's a big, there's a long timeline I can't possibly fit in my 38 years of sure. working here in Japan in just a few minutes. But really, there are some important timelines. One is, in back in 1993, opening up these these schools that everybody kind of thought I was crazy, that nobody was going to you know come and come to these schools. Uh, they were focusing on technical skill development, and and so you understand what the school meaning is is that. Kids are playing in their own club teams, and the age is focused between 6 and 12. That's one segment in Japan, 6 to 12, and then 
13 to 15 and then 16 to 18 in Japan. And so the whole idea was is that I saw there was an opportunity to solve a problem. And that problem was is that most kids don't get good technical training. And, you know, soccer development is a hit or a miss depending upon where you live will depend upon the quality of the coaching you have. And for the most part, this is really kind of across the board, a majority of kids who play the sport are technically poor. So I thought that this would be an opportunity. Um, and basically our schools run from Monday to Friday. A, a, a child will come maybe perhaps once a week or twice a week, but they're only coming purely to get technical training. We don't function as a club team. They play on their own team during the week and they play competition on the weekends. But the point is, is that when I started this back in 1993 with one or two schools, that blossomed into now, today, 150 of those schools are Whoa. everywhere in Japan. So everywhere you look, there's a school. And we've got 47 states or prefectures here. And the other thing, too, is that I basically established that business and, and was really the figurehead or the, 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 the main person for about 15 years. But then I spun out of it. I got out of it. And I've been out of it just as long as I was in it. And I basically kind of reinvented myself to a certain degree. Um, I wanted to do other things outside of Japan, working in China, working in India, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, even in America as well. So my career kind of went in a different direction, but then there was another timeline where in 1998, I got casted on Japan's number one television show for children, which is not a soccer show. It's born out of the pop, pop culture phase of, of, of Pokemon. So here I am now, I've got my own soccer corner every morning on the number one TV show, named after me, Tom San Soccer Techniques. And that corner, went for 14 years every weekday morning wow so now the whole message the whole message has become just like supercharged because now i'm i've got five million households per morning that i'm dealing with that i'm that i'm going into their home and i'm basically presenting this and that also together with with being featured in japan's number one comic book 1.3 million copies every month for 14 years and at the peak i'm doing 80 events a year i'm I'm publishing DVDs, bestsellers, books that are bestsellers. So I had a real good kind of skill set of understanding how to create content, how to, you know, present on television, doing events. I work with a lot of different brands. And I've never had a uh, representative company that has been between myself and my partners. I always do it. I've always do it myself or my own company. So there I've also been able to develop the skill of sitting in the boardroom with the CEO of Volkswagen Group or the CEO of Adidas or the CEO of, of Nestle and convince them to invest in these strategies that we built um, around the game. So those are a couple of timelines, but then the really bigger one is, and I'm coming to the, to the end of the, to my, 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 my rant here, <laughs> is that I had, a, I had a bit of an epiphany when my own kids were born. So I'd always been working with other people's kids like in like these huge events I do. I mean, my events, 600, 600, 700 kids come to my events. And so I was always working with other people's kids, but it wasn't until I had my own kids that the light just completely blinded me. And that was, is that because I'm a technical coach, uh, as soon as my son could start walking, I placed these little balls, okay, 
and and I literally to this day have them all over my house still. So we're talking 16 years ago, 17 years ago when my first boy started walking. I placed all these little balls around my house, and because I'm a technical coach, I knew the importance of ball mastery. So I discouraged kicking, which is the natural instinct for most kids, and that's the entry level for the sport usually. You go around to a park or anywhere around with there's small kids and parents and a ball, they're usually kicking it back and forth. Or Shit, they're in the, front the, of the goal and they're shooting. The early one here is called kickaroos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of them are. A lot of them are like that. So, and they'll usually use the image to promote their business of a little kid just kicking, or I use it in my presentation. I've got photos of this, right? So I'm trying to kind of smash that image because most don't understand and believe what a small child can do with a, with a ball from a small age. So that's where this whole concept of soccer starting at home has come about, is that I started seeing and understanding that my son, from a very young age, as, you know, as soon as he could stand, could basically do things and manipulate a ball if it was in the right environment. And when I say the right environment, is that I took the game from outside and brought it inside because I hadn't realized, because I didn't have my own children, how much ridiculous amount of time that little children spend indoors, yeah. right? Because you can't you can't let them out of the line of sight if it's whoever the, the caretaker is. So I made these balls really the favorite toy. And the iPhones had just come out, so I started documenting the development of my first son, not thinking that I'm gonna like travel around the world and be invited to some of the biggest club teams in the world and FIFA and all these organizations would invite me in to show them this work, but I just did it because I was a father and I thought that I knew better and I just thought that it was detrimental to constantly be just kicking the ball because there was no skill being acquired. So when I started seeing what my little two-year-old, three-year-old could do with a ball, I was just kind of blown away. So then I became, I became incredibly like possessed about development. I mean, I, I wanted to figure out why FIFA has 211 member association countries that make up FIFA, but only eight have won a World Cup tournament on the men's side. And out of those eight, there's really only a couple of serial repeat winners. So I started like trying to study, do they have better coaches, better coaches education, better curriculums, better elite player pathways, better facilities. And I came up with none of the above. What they all have is cultures of development that start way earlier than everybody else's does. So then, it culminated in me writing this book called Soccer Starts at Home around 2015, but here was the big breakthrough. Is that, at that time, I had gotten contacted by a fellow by the name of Dr. John Rady. Dr. John Rady is one of the foremost neuropsychiatrists from Harvard Medical School. And he had heard a little bit about my work, it culminated in a phone call for an hour. He started talking to me about how his own daughters played soccer. But more importantly, I had told him that I had written this book that hadn't been published yet. So he asked to read the manuscript. So we sent him the book and he just fell in love with the contents and he wound up writing 13 pages for the book, which we divided up into the forward and the afterward, which just completely blew me away. And so he started marrying the neuroscience together with what I had been doing for a couple of years with my son inside my home. And he started unpacking it and connecting the dots. And I started to learn 
you know, more about how skill is acquired, the importance of that interaction between a child and a parent that cannot be replicated by a coach out on a, on a pitch at a young age, and understanding how the, the home serves as a very safe, protective environment where learning is supercharged. And then when I started showing him the videos of my kids, he started teaching me and I started understanding what was happening. So re real quickly, and then I'll, I'll come up for air, <laughs> is that first of, all, first of all, the neuroscience is just fascinating. And most people don't understand the neuroscience, why would they? But when you, when you understand how children learn, and especially how skill is acquired, so when I showed these videos of my little two-year-old, three-year-old doing things in the, in, in, inside the living room, basically what's happening is a child is developing the ability to pay attention, to focus at mm. two years of age. Because it takes a ridiculous amount of focus for a little child to control an object with their feet, which is the ball. So that becomes a mental task. So here's the difference. When a kid is just chasing a ball around a field, kicking, that's not a mental task. That's a physical task, just chasing the ball and keeping up with it. And they usually become tired and they fall over. But when you've got a small space and a child is trying to manipulate and master that ball, right foot, left foot, balance, I feel very awkward, that's a mental task. But, but here's the magic of what happens. When the movement makes it a physical test. So the brain loves to learn while it's moving, okay? So now you've got, you've got the mind and the body, you have, you have thinking, you have feeling, you have a mental task and a physical task. And what that does is it allows the cerebellum, the part of the brain that is the seat of the of unconscious mind where regardless whether it's a mental task or a physical task, it's all stored in the cerebellum. It allows the cerebellum to create what we call a chemical signature of that experience, which is emotions. So when you create an emotionally charged environment, that's where deep learning and long-term memory takes place. So I had inadvertently set up my home to be this supercharged uh, uh, environment where learning took, took place. So the importance of repetition is what hardwires that message into the brain, okay? So this is not understood by the, 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 the soccer world, it surely isn't understood by parents, but here's the other key factor, is that the home serves as a very safe, protective environment away from ridicule where a child can fail in a fun way. But here's what I call the gift to the parents. It's the parents understanding of their child's constant need for approval, for attention and praise. And that's what creates that emotional connection shared between the child and the parent, where these skills get deposited into the brain to be used later in a very unconscious, subconscious, automated way. So when you see it's stored in what's called the, the, the non-declared memory of the brain, which makes it implicit. And when you have implicit memory, that is something that you do and you, you don't have to bring it into your conscious awareness such as driving a car or riding a bicycle. But here's the catch. There's a very small window for developing this. It's, it, you never say never that kids can't develop that ability, but 95% of a child's brain is developed by the age of five or six. So it's a very small window. So when I started connecting the dots and, and I did a lot of research about great players, 
Messi, Ronaldo, Suarez, Iniesta, Neymar, Pogba, Payne, Lewandowski. And I filmed a series about this in Australia. The common thread was they all started playing in around the home between the ages of two, three years old and the roles of the fathers and the mothers as well sometimes. But I started connecting these dots and realized that the very best of the best got this tremendous head start. Now, one last thing. Once a child masters those basic building blocks, that's when and only when they can start doing what they call scaffolding. And that's when they can start developing the more complex, difficult movements. It becomes much easier for them because they've learned the basic building block. The problem is a majority of kids who play soccer never master the basic building blocks and then they're pushed into trying to facilitate this love for playing soccer <laughs> when the ball gets in the way. Right. When yeah. you look at the great players in the world, they fall in love with the ball first and the game second. And they and, so they, that's my, and, that's, and they yeah. and they kick it hard third. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you have this relentless if you go around, you know, you you might not think about it because you're not uh, you know, aware of it. But when you go around to the parks on the weekends or just anywhere, you'll find they're filled with it. And the moms and the dads with their little children, they're just kicking the ball back and forth, usually. Or the father is just, if he was a player, he's just trying to keep the ball and the kid's chasing it, trying to get the ball. So there's not really, and then the child becomes, you know, it's not a lot of fun for the kid. It's, he runs around and, and gets tired or he's shooting on goal. And the mother or the father or the adult is always blocking the ball. Yeah. It's, it's all connected. Good, so Jared. this is what I'm always talking about with culture. Yeah, Go ahead. I tell you what, there's there's a, a ton of uh, to unpack there. Um, get something to drink there after after that long spiel. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, you know, as you were explaining that, I, I I was getting images of that famous video, like in the Tonight Show with Earl Woods and Young Tiger. Um, yeah. Were you on any Tonight Shows? But I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you had initially explained in that schooling. Um, before you got into that young age with the ball in the household, that that Japanese school starts from 6 to 12. Um, I guess my first question is, is since you've got this information, have you, have you started the schools at an earlier age, or can you just really talk about if you miss that 1 through 5, how important is that 6 through 12 uh, to catch it on the back end of that window you just explained to just play with the ball? Yeah, it's a great question. And to be clear, you're absolutely right. So the schools that we had from six to 12 were never benefit, have not benefited from this new knowledge because I'm not in the school business anymore. And one thing to make clear is, is that I'm not advocating at all for, to, for, to, create, to create commercial schools around two, three, four year olds. This falls, this doesn't fall in the context of teams or schools, this falls in the context of families. Yep. Therefore, that's why it's the importance of the family to pay the key, the, to be the key. So m all of my work now today is fo focused primarily on educating parents. So what we work with, so for example, the last four years, I have been working with the Houston Dynamo from MLS. And basically we put strategies in place, we put programs in place to try to address, trying to hitch our wagon to organizations that can deliver parents. Who is that? early learning centers, preschools, kindergartens, and then we also go first to second grade. We also, we also conducted two years of, of uh, research with the University of Houston together with the Dynamo and some partners. We partnered with 
a group called, and I believe they're in St. Louis as well, called Hip Schools, Hip Charter Schools. Yeah. They're they're focused on 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 focusing on underserved communities, and this will blow your mind. When Dr. Rady wrote the forward and the afterward for our book in 2015, he put in the book that he believed that this program of ball mastery could basically impact a child's cognitive skills, and in particular, perhaps reading, numeracy, and and literacy. Well, for the last two years, the Houston, the University of Houston. We set up a research laboratory called the Houston Dynamo Dash Soccer Starts at Home Research Laboratory on the campus at the University of Houston. And in two cohorts of kindergartners and first grade, we elevated the test scores in both reading and mathematics of these kids. By by the reason, by, by keeping the ball at their foot and, yeah. and kind of through that home system that you're... Yes. Was, so, was, was, so that, what, was that the common denominator? Yeah, so, so two, twofold. We created programs that were delivered through the school, through the PE teachers, and then we delivered a program that was delivered at home to, from the moms and the dads. So we created a feedback loop. We actually helped to redefine what physical education looks like and how it's delivered because most physical education is seen as kind of a minor sport. You show up in your street clothes and you pass. Well, then there's no homework. But what we did was, we focused on, on ball mastery. So what was happening at home was being reinforced at school. What was happening at school was being reinforced at home. And the reason for the uptick in the grades was because the part of the brain that's responsible for ball mastery is the cerebellum. But the cerebellum through the new neuroscience has been found to be uh, responsible for much more. Thinking, remembering, which is memory, controlling emotions, decision-making, reading, and single-digit mathematics. So it's actually this, it, it's, it's, a, it's a stimulation of the cerebellum enough that it's teaching a child, the, the child is learning how to learn through ball mastery. Because again, you just imagine a child who's never had a ball at their feet trying to control that object. So Dr. Rady had written in the book that he believed that this program was a tr good training for the, for the cerebellum, for I the love, for, for cerebral brain. I love this. And, and then the, the other thing. It, it is, and it's fascinating, and that's why I became so passionate about it, because I started understanding now more and more how kids learn and why. You know, when, when we often see the little six or seven-year-old who's, like, really good, everybody thinks, like, lightning struck in a bottle. Oh, my goodness, they were born like that. No, there's always going to be something behind the curtain. So getting back to the question, sorry, the long-winded answer about the schools and things, all kids can always improve. There's no doubt about it. So I would never want to say, you know, just give up on the kids that are six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Those kids will always improve. But I'm still learning and understanding now that there does seem to be a gate that closes quite early when it comes to skill activation, where a child learns much, much easier at those very, very, very younger ages. And I started realizing in our schools as well, in the olden days, that the best kids in our schools were already really pretty good before they showed up to our schools. Now, we make them better and we focus on technical skill development. And always, obviously, the, if, if, if a child learns the basic building blocks, they can start experimenting with more advanced complex skills, yeah. hence six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. But I am pr pretty much convinced that this is something that uh, is special for younger kids. Yeah, and Tom, it's, it's obvious how passionate you are about this particular topic because it sounds like you started a little bit 
at the other end of the spectrum, even with youth development. And you talked about, well, I was a player for a while and then I got into development. Well, now you're yep. talking about a whole new set of development skills and tools and toddler development. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And I've seen the videos on your, your ex formerly known as Twitter yep. feed. And I also watch yep. our, our, our good friend Kenny Godat, um, <laughs> coach and developer here in St. Louis, who has his you know grandson yeah. doing the same thing. And, and so I, I first of all, I want to thank you for putting that out in the world. And hopefully it's going to catch on United States and other in other areas. But I want to <clears throat> I want to ask you about something a little bit different, because I think we'll we'll put links out to, you know, your content for our listeners to learn more about the program, learn more about the research, more about the books that you've, you've put out, the videos, et cetera. And I've seen your Thompson website, um, which is very, very yep. impressive. So I, my question really is more about your life and how it got to this sure. point. Meaning you talked about your, your two sons. I'm assuming you mentioned the iPhone, which is released in 08. So are your kids in that 14, 15 and down range? How old are your kids? And how did you decide, you know what? I think I'm going to spend the next 40 plus years in Japan. Um, and and, 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 and yeah. the culture of Japan, actually 30 years, I guess, or more. Just so my, my two part question is about the culture of Japan. What attracted you to that? So much so that you decided to stay and, and raise your family there. Yeah, great question. So yeah, I came in the mid '80s, and and I played for a team called Hitachi, which is in the J League now. The J, just for for context, uh, I played in the mid 1980s, and the J League was born with ten clubs in 1993. Okay, uh, was when the J, J. So we're exactly 30 years anniversary. Yes. Yeah. Right now. So after I got out of playing, I fell in love with the country like many do. Um, I wanted to stay here. I wanted to stay connected uh, into the soccer business here. I pitched an idea to a bunch of a couple of former players who were my buddies that I, I, I played with and that I hung out with um, to get interested in trying to uh, do something for grassroots soccer. I had a I had a big break because I was and I tell this story I'll, real quickly. I, at, at the time, I couldn't speak Japanese, so I would go around and I would volunteer to coach at like military bases, which we have a lot of here, yeah. they speak English, Inter international schools. I was just trying to find my, my skill and, and learn about coaching and things. And it was just for one day that I was at a school, an international school, and I asked one child, what, how long have you been here? Was, the kid was around 10 or 11. And, he, he, and I said, what does your dad do? And he said, my dad works for Nestle. And that was it. And then I went back. This was in Kobe, which is a couple of hours bullet ride uh, train set down. I came back to Tokyo and then I opened up a newspaper that week and I saw that Nestle had this big boys international soccer uh, tournament coming up. So I connected. Uh, I said, I just met a kid from Nestle. This literally the, and if this hadn't happened, I might not be here still, to be honest. That's why it's such a key story. So I called down to the school. And I talked to the soccer coach and I, I asked him, I said, uh, we had dial-up phones back then still. <laughs> and I said, you know, I met this kid that he says dad worked for Nestle. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's the Yost family. So he gave me the phone number. And that night I called to the house and the kid answered. And I said, hey, listen, you, you said that your dad worked for Nestle. Well, what does he do? He goes, he's the president. And he put his dad onto the phone 
And from that one conversation, I got an entree into walking into Nestle uh, here in Tokyo. And I walked out of that meeting in 1988, having agreed to do 50, 50, five zero, 50 events starting in 1989. And then I had to figure out how I was going to do that. <laughs> so that was my big lucky break. And then I stayed with Nestle for 10 years. And then the timeline, I, uh, it, just, it just all started blossoming. But that was really the reason. And, and so, you know, I, I just had such a good experience from that. It, I built my network through that because I was doing 50 events a year all over the country. Um, and then the timeline was I had, no, I had no real philosophy or methodology other than, you know, kids experience in an event with a bunch of former pro players. That was it, right? But then I got interested in the work of the Dutchman, Will Kerber. And through a good friend of mine, Paul Mariner, the former striker of England, uh, who was a, 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 unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but he, was a, he coached in the MLS as well. He got me interested in the, in, the, in the work of the Dutchman, Will Kerber. So I introduced that philosophy and methodology to Japan. And so I'd already had a built-in network from the Nestle event. So now I'm going back around, but I've actually got some substance now. I'm focusing on technical skills. I'm focusing on ball mastery. And then the TV show hits, 93, the, the, uh, the J-League's born. The JFA puts their hand in the air to be the hosts of the 2002 World Cup. So it was just soccer, soccer, soccer everywhere. And that's where kind of the opportunity came well, around. Le, yeah. Le, yeah, let me, let me, I'm going to interject here because I want to kind of like get us to a transition, kind of a metric point with what you've been describing in, in your participation in the, the broader Japanese soccer market. Um, sure. Can you speak to trend? Because in the mid 80s, when you went over there, late 80s, you know, the, the pro league didn't exist. It was probably ele elevated pay to play or getting paid to play on what would be like a, a, a triple A or a double A type of a team. Um, along comes 93, the league starts. Uh, you start this program. Um, can, can you describe the trajectory? Like the work that you've yeah. done, has it been measured? Is it is it being appreciated? Is it being implemented? It, you know, can can you point to a success ratio with the thirty years that you've been doing this, and, and what does that look like? Sure. Well, success comes in many different ways. If you want to look at the high end, for example, this last World Cup in Qatar, the the, the Japan national team had no fewer than four players from our schools and in key positions, number six, number eight, and number 10, all wow. come from our schools. So the players that so, touch, touch the ball a little bit. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and I, I can name who they are. Minamino, Deep Doan, uh, we have uh, uh, Endo Wataru, who is now the current captain of the Japan national team. Did these kids start at six? School. Did they start at six? Yeah, well, you know, some of them started earlier, but they at least spent several years at our schools between 6 and, and 12 years of age. Wow. So in Japan here, a little structure and context too. Basically, soccer is organized by, by grades, okay? So you've got six years of elementary school, three years of middle school, three years of high school. So there's three, these are three different organizations for playing, okay? So one metric is on that. Half of the national team on the women's side come from our are from our schools. 
including probably one of the best players of all time here, Miyama Aya. Uh, she's the one who scored the the the, the, the uh, tying goal against the U.S. in 2011. Three-time FIFA best player of the, of the tournament. Did you feel guilty about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, to, to be honest with you, not really, because I was always rooting, rooting for. I have to for for for, for transparency here. Um, I, I was quite happy when Japan won, to be honest with you, because my whole career has been here in Japan. Of course, yeah. I love my country and I do a lot, but no, that was a very emotional period. But yeah, so when we measure that success. But here's the difference. Here's what the schools have made a difference is. When I first got here in the 1980s, we had really good players, but we didn't have many of them. Okay, we didn't have many of them. Now fast forward, and we have many great players. And so, and the reason why is because when you can, when you can close the gap between the very best players and the worst players, that's where the magic happens. That's where the elite player pool bursts. Right, right. And that's where even if we want to even talk about the U.S., the U.S. struggles a little bit like that still, if you look at it, because you can go around and you can see, especially at the youngest ages, the gap between the best little eight-year-old and, and the least developed eight-year-old is like the Pacific Ocean. It's yes. too big still. But here in Japan, it's everywhere. So we've got players. The, 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 here's another one, too. If you look at the level of the American players that play in Europe versus the Americans who get on the pitch in the MLS, which are very few that nowadays, okay, the gap is pretty big. Here in Japan, the gap between the players that are playing like at, at, at Liverpool or Mitoma in the Premier League as well, when you look at those players and the J-League players, the gap is not that huge. It's not that huge. It's quite small. And that's why there's this kind of, this like, this incredible explosion of Japanese players now going to European clubs um, and they're just constantly being scouted and, and taken to Europe is because we have so many. Good so too. really what what we did was we, we it's that old saying you know high tide raises all boats and that's what's happened here now. So every time I see a, a new tournament whether it's the under 17 World Cup, the under 20 World Cup, the, the Olympics, there's new stars that are born every single tournament because the bench is so incredibly uh, uh, strong. Um, and that's where we saw it in the World Cup. Our bench came off the bench and beat Spain and beat Germany. Those are players that all came off the bench. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so you guys are definitely the on the up and up, that's for sure, as, as a national team program. Another metric of success. Um, our listeners know, you know, this is an audio podcast, but we're, we're doing a Zoom, a visual Zoom here. And over your left shoulder, there is a golden spike, which for our listeners um, was awarded to you in the 1998, after the 1998 French World Cup. Um, to, yeah. to, to date, you are the only youth coach to ever win that award um it, it i guess it you can speak on it but it, it it probably is attributed to the hundreds of thousands of youth players that you have um uh, developed or or been a part of their young life all over the world yeah no thank you i, I appreciate you doing your your uh, your your homework and checking into my past but yeah that was in uh in Marseille, France, after the the 1998 World Cup draw, before the World Cup started, actually, and the guy who actually physically handed that to me is a guy named Graham Morgan, um, who was the head of grassroots football development globally for Adidas, and so I've had a very long relationship with them. I've been their football ambassador for many, many years as well, and it was for my country. It was kind of quite surprising because it happened 
pretty early in my career as a coach, whereas I've definitely, I've definitely contributed and done probably much more today to warrant something like that that I might not have done <laughs> when I received it. But th thank you for, for noticing that. But yeah, you know, it's given me an incredible opportunity. I've been able to um, work with players like David Beckham, Zinedine Zidane. I mean, anytime those guys come to Japan, they would always come through my, they'd either come on my TV show, they'd be, you know, we'd do something with our comic book, we'd do an event together. And so I learned also how to interact with the stars. But really what it really did, it, it really opened up uh, my eyes to us that you could take a player like myself who didn't have a huge playing career and become a grassroots kind of iconic figure by elevating the status. And if you've maybe seen, I've got an incredible special picture of myself and Zidane doing an event in Tokyo in, uh, in stadium in. here. Is he the best central midfielder player of all time for you? You know, he's he's up there with got to be one of the best, you know. I mean, the, the, the thing nowadays, I mean, if you want to talk about the best player, and I'm, I, I think Messi's just, I don't think there's anybody even in, in, a, in, a, in, a different, in the same level as him. But Zidane, I think there's generational players, right? I mean, if you do look throughout the generations, there's great players that were great during their era, whether it was in the 70s or the 80s. But I think also now that some of these players obviously they're much more popular because of media and our ability to be able to just constantly watch them play mm. back in the olden days you were lucky you had to actually go to the stadium right. or be lucky enough if, if you had a tv to uh, a, a broadcast to watch but hey there's great players hey tom i got a question for you because i'm kind of piecing together segments of our conversation and your insight and experience and a couple things have stuck out to me uh, one, obviously, is the work that you and your counterparts are doing there in Japan from a broader cultural, stylistic approach at such young ages that grows into or molds what is a soccer culture. And then you add yep. on technical skills, you know, on top of that, almost like a layer cake. Um, yep. And then you mentioned uh, Will Corver, you know, the Dutch system, you know, it, it, Cruyff. And his effect, you know, within that system. And, and you go around the world and there's a few very noticeable systems like the, the two that we just talked about that are well. Now, the other thing that I'm picking up on is you talked about the U15, the U17, the international tournaments, you know, your, your teams, the, 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 the Japanese men and women are both doing well you know, in those tournaments and continue to turn heads. But the other team that does really well in those tournaments without a defined culture, approach, system, funnel, whatever we want to call it, is the United States. Our men's programs at the younger ages, 15, yeah. 17, 19, even the, you know, 21, 23, we always seem to do really well. We come out swinging. We knock down, quote, giants regularly, but rarely do we get to the finish line. And we're doing that with what we've talked about on this show often, a lack of identity, a lack of true culture. And, you know, and there's a lot of factors there. But I want to get your take on what your opinion as to why we don't see a more systematic culture, a more systematic approach, um, because clearly we've got athletes, we got good players that can go to these tournaments at younger ages and do really, really well. 
but we're not getting over the finish line. Do you see our lack of a system similar to what you're implementing, to what the Dutch have implemented as part of the problem, or is it bigger than that? I think that the for me the glaring problem when I watch the US play is that I just I hate to say it but I just think the players just are not good enough technically. We've relied a little bit too much and I think this is definitely uh, you can see this with the women's game. We've relied way too much on that kind of, you know, the physical aspects, the speed, the power, the mental toughness, that kind of, you know, American fighting spirit. Those are all admirable, right? But when it comes to the technical skills, especially at the highest level, the beautiful game. I can just see, I can see it. And and you know, it's not to say which program is better, but you could even see it with the buildup. If you remember when the U.S. played Japan, and I think we beat the the the, the Japan one two zero. I think it was. It was with all the yeah. full national team players. <clears throat> and you could see the, te the, te the technical side was just lacking behind that. And so that's very hard to make up. And so when you look at those countries. Okay, so here's a number, a couple of st stats for you. There's been 90 years of World Cup tournaments, 22 World Cup tournaments, okay, over 90 year period of time. Only eight countries have made it to, uh, have won a World Cup tournament, and then another five have even made it to a final. So that's only 13 countries, okay, 13 countries. So this is a very, very exclusive, tiny group of, group of uh, countries that really get best. But when you look at the, the characteristics of them, those ones that are really, really the best are just technically on a different level. They really are. Without, without if, question. If, 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 and the thing is, too, is that if it was only about the coaching, and this is the thing that drives me nuts, because the coaching world has convinced everybody that when it comes to when it comes to development in the traditional sense, it only happens between a very educated, you know, licensed coach and, and a player. That's the reality. Yep. But there's a limit to what good coaching can achieve. There's can, just a limit. Can you speak a on... a lot of... Go ahead. I, well, let, 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 do this for me. Speak on JB's question specifically because you just outlined those 13 countries. We can sit here and name them. We don't need to. They have a very sure. specific um, identity, whether it's the South American yep. futsal, the samba. Yep. Learn that you're getting that development you're speaking of it through that sport at an early age. Um why are they doing it that way and how come the usa has i think is what J, jb was asking how come the united states hasn't caught on yeah okay because i think that the main difference at the youngest ages first of all we can start is that all of those cultures players are falling in love with the ball first before in the context of a game i can't help but think that in america we're forcing kids to fall in love with soccer and the ball gets in the way so it's almost as simple as that. So when you've got when you've got little kids that are that are that are ball mastery wizards at six, seven, eight, that's when they can start becoming more advanced. The little Spanish seven, eight-year-old is already trying to think about how to create space and move players and move the ball around so that they can they can basically manipulate the space. They're looking for the killer pass. They're understanding at a very young age. Uh, combination play. How do I use my players as a decoy to pass another player? These things are happening at a much earlier age group, which means that at those youngest ages in those countries, okay, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, Germany, Spain, France, Italy, and then England is the eight. Those countries, their competition is so fierce at those young ages. 
In America, yeah, there's competition, but you're not going to see it at that level that's a tipping point where where development is happening very organically, where nobody can really explain. You know, when people uh, talk about the, the strong football cultures like Brazil, oh, Brazil, football's a religion, everybody plays football, but that nobody's been able to explain why they're so good. I understand now, because I understand also a little bit of the neuro neuroscience, and that is, is that from futsal, from playing in the favelas, what's happening is those young kids are constantly, there's what's called Hebb's Law, Hebb's Law in neuroscience, which means nerve cells that fire together, they wire together to make a strong neural pathway, a, a, a neural connection. So the only way to strengthen that neural connection is through repetition. That's what hardwires those neural connections. So what and you're saying is, what you're saying is that it's not because the young Brazilian players are also playing basketball and baseball. It's because <laughs> at three, four to ten years old, they fall in love with a sport and they learn something so vital. And you talked about the building blocks and I'm putting the pieces together to answer your question for him, kind of. And I want you to knock me down, Tom, from Japan if I'm wrong here. But what you're saying is Brazil and Holland can have a style because they have a foundation of extremely technically gifted, not gifted, technically talented players that you could teach a style to. Whereas in the United States, because we're not as technically talented at an earlier age, we don't have a style to really even Te adapt Teaching to. the technical too late in Correct. the game. You, 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 hit, you hit the nail on the head. Yes, I win. Yeah, you just explained it. You explained it better than I could. So, so it, that's exactly what's happening. So what's happening is, is that in America, we have this fascination with piling on more coaches' education on top of more coaches' education. And the reality is, is that most of the kids cannot benefit from all these great coaching experiences and licenses that it's everybody too late. has. That's the problem. And, and that's, that's what I'm, I'm screaming about because the reality is, is that here, Roy Keane, I have a little slide in my present, and this is what I said. Skill was and never will be the result of coaching. It's a love affair between child and ball. So the reality is, and, and here the, the, what's happening even more is, is that the football world is still continuing to pile on more coaches' education, and you need another advanced certificate, and you need this certificate, and now it's about talent ID. No, it's not. It's about talent development much more than yeah. talent identification is but now everybody's going with this whole monster that it's about talent id and you got to find the right players well, you can't find what you don't have let, yeah. let, let's yeah. do this let, let's let's dumb it down because the, the vast majority of our listeners are actually soccer parents that are just sure. trying to figure out a way to navigate this whack world that we live in over here in particular you know because we are in a pay-to-play environment you've got you got CYC and you got rec and you got club and you got academy and then you got high school and you know it, it's all these factions and fractions of the total um, speak to that 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 couple that are listening <laughs> that that have a four-year-old five-year-old six-year-old yes um, yes Give a, just give them a nugget, you know? And, and yeah, of course, they're, they're going to go out, they're going to buy your book, and they're going to go find those DVDs, and they'll do all that too. But can you give them a freebie uh, just to get them started? Absolutely. And first of all, they don't need to buy a thing. I'm going to give you the elevator <laughs> pitch right here. If you're a parent of a child that's two, three, four, five, here's the, here's the pitch. 
If you can get a child comfortable with a ball at their feet, comfortable, competent, what does that mean? Simple ball mastery. They can manipulate the ball. They can transfer the ball from the right foot to the left foot. They can, they can, they can basically change direction. They can stop start with the ball under no pressure. If you can get that child comfortable and competent with the ball before they cross over the line into organized play, which is usually the age of six, that kid is gonna develop regardless whether they're paired with the inexperienced volunteer mom or dad coach. I've seen it because it happened with my own kids. And what happens is when a child crosses over that line into organized play and they've got ball mastery uh, 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 capabilities, there's gonna be a bias that manifests in such a positive way. Those kids normally become the most popular kids on the team. They usually become the leaders of the, of the team. And the reason why is because when you get a really good six-year-old kid and the coach says three to a ball, four to a ball, they're all looking around to see where the good kid is because they want to play with that kid. So yep. That kid becomes popular. Mm -hmm. Second, when the coach wants someone to demonstrate who is he or she going to ask, going to ask the good kid. So now a little six-year-old is getting the opportunity at leading a pack of other 20-year-olds. That's leadership. And I don't think it, it was a fluke that both of my boys, four years apart, both become number 10s and the captains of their team. And it wasn't because I'm a, a, this great coach, because I'm not. It's just that I understood that it was important for them to have some kind of skill set. It's like preschool, man. It's like if, if you see any child that does well in, in, in school academically, there's probably going to be a, a, a culture at home that values education and the kid's going to get a head start. Good. Soccer, if you get the head true. start, ne yeah. never say never but very difficult for those other six and seven-year-olds to catch that other kid. Yeah. If, ahead, if, if I was listening to this on my radio, driving somewhere or in my Walkman headphones. Which you will be. Wow. Which I will be, because I do have <laughs> a Walkman, too, um, made in Japan. They, um, my, here, here's my question, um, because I would be yelling at the, the radio. Have you been contacted by U.S. Soccer, and why aren't you here developing our youth? Good question. I actually am working, doing some work with U.S. Soccer right now. I just, uh, I took on a project in North Carolina State um, because if uh, you, I'm sure you guys probably know from UNC women's head coach Anson Dorrance. Yep. Yes. Yeah, we've we've heard, heard of him. Of him. Yeah. He's he's he's, yeah. he's he's pretty big. <laughs> yeah. So Anson <laughs> has been lobbying me literally for for probably ten years to do this project. So long story short, I just came, I was just in North Carolina in October. And basically, I signed a two-year contract to create a pilot program for the state. And U.S. Soccer, the president, uh, Cindy Cohn, she actually came to the press conference to announce this. And U.S. Soccer has invested some money into that project. Um, so that's a, it's a collaboration between the North Carolina Youth Soccer Association, U.S. Soccer, um, and also just the whole kind of uh, area in, in around North Carolina. And what it is, it's a two-year project to basically create a movement, uh, build advocacy, uh, design. We have an online kind of content base that's free for people to use that live in North Carolina. So yes, I, I, I am doing work with, with, with U.S. Soccer. Would I like it to be going you know, to a bigger scale and a bit quicker? Yes, of course I would. But at least we're we're doing something with them right now. I, I'm doing also with the MLS. Um, after piloting with the Houston Dynamo for four years, we and our our research was 
quite compelling and remarkable. Um, there are discussions with other MLS clubs uh, to take Great. on the program. But Tom, Tom let, yeah, me, let, let me take this a step further because it's kind of a, a piggyback onto my question a little bit earlier about the U.S. culture and development, et cetera. And now you're talking about uh, working with U.S. soccer with Anson in that North Carolina market. Um, But if we zoom out, you're a New York guy, right? And you grew up in the Northeast model and the culture and kind of the scene that was Northeast soccer. We're we're headquartered. We live here in St. Louis. Obviously, we've got our background in in the game. Uh, There's Southern California. Now there's a big Texas scene. You know, and, and in the Carolinas in particular, Look, they've grown off the back of the ACC, which has been the powerhouse conference in collegiate soccer for a long, long time. So when we look at the states and we look at everything being segmented, how do you see us potentially bridging that gap if, when, and is it even possible given you've been abroad for so long, you know our landscape here, can we start to pull these soccer ideologies within our own backyard? Can those start to align at some point yeah, marry the moving forward? Yeah. That's a, a, a Mary, so this is the way I try to position what we're doing. I look at this soccer starts at home as the glue, the stickiness. This should be able to bring together all of our alphabet soup organizations that we have, which we have too many of. There's just so many of them. But I found now from our work in Houston and then what we're doing in North Carolina, we are the glue. We're the ones that can bring everybody together, whether it's at, at the recreation, whether it's the YMCA, whether it's parks and recreation, whether it's it's USYS, whether it's a, a club soccer, ECNL, a, a MLS, USL, high schools. Every If you're trying to create a culture of development, that's everybody. There has to be a message. And there has to be some way to build that advocacy. That's what I'm doing in North Carolina. That's why when I went there, it's, a, it's, it's, it's one of many things. It's building the advocacy amongst the major stakeholders. But unless you know who those stakeholders right. are, you, you, it doesn't go. So it's building the advocacy. It's desi- designing the strategy. Okay, The strategy for us is very simple. Basically, get create a movement that's centered around soccer starts at home that focuses on parents. Where are those parents? Like I said, early learning centers. So it has an academic component. The good news is, is because we had such a remarkable outcome where we raised the test scores of kids in Houston for math, for literacy and numeracy, it's a no-brainer. Educators love our program. But unless the soccer world, here's what happened. Soccer has not caught up to what science already knows. And that is, is that skill acquisition happens much earlier than they thought. So when you look at all of the curriculums, of a lot of the national bodies around the world, which I've read most of them. The skill act, the first time a child comes on the radar screen for a soccer federation is between the ages of six and nine. They call it the discovery phase. And they build the characteristics of a six to nine year old. Lacks motor skills, clumsy, short attention span. So they say, just play fun games related to, to soccer. This is a very Eurocentric approach because when they started with coaches education proliferation back in the 1970s primarily germany holland and england they never took into consideration that there was a technical deficit why would they football's a religion everybody so all of the curricula centered around systems tactics formations 
uh, 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 psychology, uh, fitness, blah, blah, blah. And it literally has not So when you look at the current uh, curriculums of these uh, federation, they put the skill acquisition phase between the ages of 10 and 13. So I tell them, you're not just missing the bullseye throwing darts, you're missing the whole target. So they haven't understood. <laughs> you it. know, Tom, um, I, I, I'm going to sign out here on my end because I know we're getting toward, towards the end. I have one question for you. You've been in J- sure. Japan for 30 years um, or, or more, and you've developed this program, uh, you know, domestically in that country. Does Japan, you mentioned the 13 teams. Um, everybody's aware. Our listeners, I think, are aware. Does Japan win a World Cup in your lifetime, men's program? I don't know if it'd be in my lifetime, but they are definitely probably the front runners to be an outlier. Here's real something really interesting to understand too, though. The problem that we have in Japan is, is that our confederation, which is 47 countries, the gap between the very best of Japan, there's only, there's five teams in Japan, so Japan or in, in Asia, Japan, Korea, Australia, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, and they dominate. And we've got 42 other countries. And this brings me to what I'm gonna set up and say next. When you look at the eight countries that have won World Cup tournaments, there's never been modern day a country that has won a World Cup tournament that doesn't border another country that's won a World Cup tournament, with the exception of England. But if you take the English Channel as a border, they as well. Here's another one. There's never been a country that's won a World Cup tournament with a foreign coach, ever. And up until now, out of the eight World Cup champions, only one has even experimented with a foreign coach. That's England with uh, uh, Sven Eriksson and uh, Capello. So what, the, what I'm saying is, is that culture rules. And also, obviously, the Europeans being so close proximity and the South Americans, that competition is fierce. Yeah. Japan being an island, being an island, and basically our, our confederation goes from Japan all the way out to Saudi Arabia. That's wow. a huge swath, right? It's massive. But I still think Japan is obviously doing things that are... that. Uh, and, and again, even the Japanese here, even the guys that are... Even many of them cannot explain and articulate why Japan has become so good. And that's often the case with a lot of I different countries. I think you countries. just did. But answer... Yes. I, exactly. I'm not letting you off the hook. Answer, yes or no? He said, he said yes. no. I say, I say, I say yes. Yes. Oh, now, yeah, I love it. Let's that. go. You heard it, love again, it, folks. Go ahead, Zach. No, I, Tom, I just want to, again, thank you for, for coming on. And <clears throat> the passion is, is clear. And even after, you know, decades of doing this, I'm hopeful that other folks take this up because I think you're on to something that could revolutionize this game. But there are still so many other factors, style of play, yep. competition with, you know, pre-World Cup so many factors and so i guess my question for you really is similar to jared's you know does the u.s ever get to that point do they ever get to the point where <laughs> well they l- could compete? L- l- let's just ask the prediction for 26 yeah, l- yeah uh, 2026 wh- where do you think the u.s ends up i think it's not going to be any different than it is now i mean you know we'll have a good run we'll, we'll, we'll we might knock off a big team but I, I think we're still far away from, you know, getting into a final four or getting into a, a semifinal or a final of a World Cup tournament. And Japan is too. I mean, it. This is not easy. It, let, let's put it this way: it's easier. It's 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 harder to get into the World Cup than it is to actually win a World Cup. To be honest with you, to a certain degree, right? 
But I mean, now with the expanded format of the extra teams as well, right, right. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna see some lopsided games as well. well do you think? Do you think kind of like the uh, NCAA basketball tournament? Do you think there's gonna be some Cinderella stories with the new format? I don't think so. I, I think this. If if one thing I can I can say with confidence is this is not a Cinderella sport. No. Um, I agree as with in, that. you know, you you rarely, rarely get any team that's going to... I mean, the closest team that did that this past was Morocco, right? I mean, right. they had an unbelievable run. But they also they have a pretty strong football culture as well. Um, you know, a lot of those other countries like the Moroccos, what they're really, what they're really lacking is uh, better resources at that really elite level that they that they lack or, or some of those countries and they're right? just a mediterranean sea away from some other world cup winners a- a- absolutely <laughs> absolutely but i i don't think that that the uaa i'd like to be proven wrong obviously right but when you look at the level of the players that are playing in the in, in europe and then you look at the level of the american players playing in the mls we don't have enough guys and and, and i can't remember where i saw it i saw it on social media that this last with this whole kind of mls playoff thing um, someone put out a statistic. They did an analysis of how many Americans were actually on the pitch for like the final four and the final like eight teams. It's not good. There's very few. Most of them are foreign players. I, I, so I, that. Go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say. Well, kind of along those lines. I got I got two questions. To close this out. Um, first question is along the player side, uh, because there's a lot of debate uh, surrounded uh, around the current what we'll call the top 18 U.S. players in past iterations of the, the, the team. How good, in your opinion, with Christian, with Gio, with uh, you know, e- even our own beloved Tim Ream, you know, it, it, playing the way he yep. is in back, how good is this group, in, in your opinion, compared to the Dempsey Beasley years, to the, you know, go back to the Harks days, you know, pick 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 your generation. How do you view this group today? Given that the, the 18 that I'm talking about, they're not in yep. MLS. They are in Europe, yep. starting for powerhouse teams. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about. It. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we've advanced significantly over the decades. There's no doubt about it, right? And I think that this crop of players that are playing now are definitely, if you look at kind of the overall picture of the mass number of eight whether it's 18 players or what have you it's probably the best that we've had at this point you know we've got the players that are playing in champions league they're playing and starting in you know huge huge clubs now so i, I think it, it's it's bright there's no doubt about it but we need a much bigger mass of these players we need lots more we need to be we need to be hearing literally almost on a weekly basis how you know u.s american players are being sought after to go to Europe. And I think it's gonna happen. Um, but the problem is, is that even if you look at this group now, I don't know if it would be half, but I, again, I can only tell from what I read on, 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 in the news, but I'd say a quarter of these players that are even playing for the US were not developed in the US as well. So we've got still that ability because of, you know, for example, my kids, my kids, if my kids, they can, they can have multiple passports. My kids could have a Spanish passport, they could have a Croatian passport, an American passport, a Japanese passport. So we have that luxury in America that we have this incredible amount of immigrant families that basically kids play. 
So I don't know. Let's see. But surely we need to do a much better job at the at the grassroots level here or in the states. But here's a, and on a promising note, I'm very very optimistic about what's happening at the MLS academies. I'm very optimistic, and the reason is because I've had a bird's eye view looking at the Houston Dynamo Academy and working in that academy, and and I've and and what's happening around the other in the old. We still have the pay-to-play model, but I can just tell you that any MLS academy director or coach could drive around a neighborhood, stop their car, go and watch, and pluck a kid out and bring him to the academy free of charge tomorrow morning, and that literally happens. So I think that it's getting much better. There's a huge investment of millions of dollars that are going into academies at the MLS level. So I think that there is reason for hope and optimism. Um, with what's happening in the U.S., so I'm gonna my take. Well, totally agree with you. I'm gonna close you out with the hard-hitting question to wrap it up. Oh boy, you're you're a New York guy, right? Uh, yep. Desert Island. Do you take your fresh new sashimi from your backyard or a New York slice? Oh boy, that's a that's a <laughs> New York slice, man. I'm a yeah. <laughs> hey, when I go when I go back to New York, I'm I I, I eat a little bit too much the, when I'm in uh, New York. Well, so I'm, I'm going to be there on there. Wednesday. What's your what's your go-to slice in, in New York? Well, you know, I don't really have a particular place because the good news is is that there's a there's a there's a pizza restaurant just about every street. <laughs> yes, and every other building. It's just all, I know. It's it's just all good. I love it. And I, I have to admit too that I, I eat a lot of pizza here in Japan as well. We have some, <laughs> the one thing about Japan is, and I would love for any of you ever to come out here if you do, I'm all in. the sushi that I'm you in. can eat or all the pizza you can eat. But we actually have some good quality uh, places, restaurants here that serve the most unbelievable pizza in Japan as well. Uh, oh, you yeah. know what? I actually have a part B of my final question: uh, karaoke bar or sports bar? Oh, that's an easy karaoke bar overnight. <laughs> 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 Because hey. they have TVs too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, Tom, man, this this has been a pl- this has been a blast, man. We've really been looking forward to this. I know that uh, we kind of ping ponged uh, for a little bit trying to make it happen. Uh, we all follow you on socials. We're going to continue to follow you. Um, really look forward to kind of seeing the next wave, the next phase. And when you come back yep. to the states too, I, I mean, hit, us hit us up. You know, we're here. We're here in the middle. You know, we we're, we're we're ten hours from everywhere. <laughs> so let, let me let me let me let me say one thing. I forgot uh, two things. First of all, uh, Zach Lewis. There are two. I have a, a really good friend of mine, Zach Lewis. And when I got the email that Zach Lewis was going to be on here, I sent a message to him. I said, "Dude, what are you doing on the podcast?" And we figured out that there's there's more than one. There's Zach more than Lewis one of us. One yeah. The second thing is when I grew up and I played in in my junior college. I went to a community college. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this college called Ulster County Community College. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because we won back-to-back national championships and both back-to-back finals were played. One was against Fluorescent Valley and the other one was Merrimack Valley. Yep. So I just wanted to kind of <laughs> Flow get Valley, that little, that, that little that jab. Was, uh, Sorbs. Yeah, Pete yeah, Sorber. Pete Yep. So Mike Sorber's dad was the coach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. see now you didn't yeah, have so, to go so rubbing that in on the outro here. <laughs> you could have yeah. led with that and gave us time you, to recover. You, I, have deepest, <laughs> I have the deepest respect for St. Louis because when I grew up, I mean that was the pinnacle. That was the gold bar standard of players that come from St. Louis. And I've got I had a a teammate of mine. Maybe you guys know. 
Jay White, who played for Terry yeah. uh, in the high school level, and he was my teammate at the University of South Florida. That's nice. awesome. So, nice. Yeah. Well, hey, Tom. Best of luck, man. Like I said, we're gonna be we're gonna continue to follow. Uh, we're gonna be in touch again because if it's all right with you, we'd love to have you back on. Because everything that you're doing and touching, there's updates that inevitably are going to occur, and we'd love we'd love to learn more. So if you're willing, we'd love to have you back. Yeah, and I'd love to anytime uh, that you guys have another spare hour. Uh, to get online, and I will show you the Football Starts at Home presentation, yeah, which like I'm that. sure you will enjoy. Well, I tell you what, we'll do it. We'll set it up. Uh, we're we're going to let you go, let you dip out of here. Thank you very much for joining us. Go ahead, Jared. What you got? Well, I, I want you to do the outro, but I got a question off mic for you. Uh, all right well hey everybody thank you for joining uh give us a follow give us a share give us a review all that fun stuff uh the pinnacle you guys uh you guys rock thanks for the help and support explore st louis because that's the thing to do we just gave you some new options and uh without further ado we're gonna roll out of here real quick and uh thank you tom thank you boys we'll see you next time